But Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and he was heart, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after the young men, rather whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am Redeemer, yet there is a Redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one would recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Here ends the reading of the word. Let's pray. Father God, please remove from us all manner of distraction, all manner of weariness and tiredness, and let us hear a word from you. Let us sample from the storehouse of heaven. Let your spirit feed us this morning. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. We continue forward in this Remarkable biblical story that has just been intermixing these contrasts with one another. Bethlehem and Moab. The city of bread and the city of Lot's daughters uh, who were devilish in schemes. And yet, even Bethlehem has its own problems. We have the contrast of Elimelech, the man who would not stay with God 
in famine, and Boaz, the man who is generous, overly generous, so generous that uh, the only explanation is he is made that way. His generosity comes from God, which he celebrates. We have Ruth and Orpha. We have famine and feast. We have death and rebirth. We have hope and depression. We have the law and we have also the spirit of the law, the wisdom of the law. And before we get into chapter 3, I really want to dive into a problem a lot of people make when it comes to the book of Ruth. We are the people, we are the society that have watched thousands of Hollywood movies with romantic relationships, with relationships that develop. We know the story of Cinderella, and it has been popular in modern culture to make Ruth a Cinderella story, to kind of flatten it, to say almost like as if we were watching the Hallmark Channel together, oh, I've seen this plot before. And you're going to miss things if you do that that the ancient reader would have appreciated. You're going to miss what they would have considered the high point, what they would have considered the important realities if you make that your focus. It's... It is a, yes, in one sense, a biblical love story, but a biblical love story is honest about the nature of even marriage itself. Marriage is not all sunshine and rainbows. Marriage is actually a call into a unique sacrifice. Both parties need to have a sacrifice. Love is far more than a feeling. Love is actually a commitment. Love involves an action, an investment. And so, don't just make this the Bible's version of Cinderella. And in going into this story, I'd also like to to point out the fact that even though this letter is called the Book of Ruth, has it really been Ruth's story that has dominated the chapter so far? I think there's actually a good argument to be made that... Um, and I believe chapter 4 will help show us this even more clearly, um, that in a lot of ways, the book of Ruth is really the story of God's all overwhelming love for Naomi. Naomi was stranded in Moab, childless, without a future, husbandless, and yet she sought the hope of Bethlehem, a better harvest. And she tried to plead with her two daughters-in-law, return to Moab. Because you won't have a future in Bethlehem. And then the greeting she received in Bethlehem so discouraged her. The gossip was so discouraging. It's always discouraging. But oh, how we can grow addicted to being a part of it and to be party to it. But that by chapter 2, it's clear that Naomi is having a dark moment of the soul. That she's just dead to life. And yet Ruth went out in that chapter in Naomi's dark moment of the soul, seeking to bless her friend in her hour of need. And in verse 20 of chapter 2, we saw that Naomi declared nothing short of God's goodness to her and through the actions of others to provide a resurrection of sorts. And while we didn't get into it last week, after Naomi and Ruth celebrate their good fortune of being under the care of Boaz, the last verse of chapter 2, verse 23, makes clear that Ruth continued to harvest, 
next to the young women of Boaz until the end of the barley and wheat harvest as she lived with her mother-in-law. Until the end of the wheat and barley harvest. And what's the big deal there? Well, you know, this is a point in time where it really is important to know the Jewish calendar. See, what you would do is you would first start out the harvest year by celebrating Passover. You would have started the year, started the harvest season by celebrating the Passover. And the Passover, of course, um, is the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Passover was one day, and then the next day was the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And it celebrated the start of the harvest year. That you were beginning to bring in the grains and the barley and the wheat that would make the bread that would sustain you for the period of the year. And then 50 days after that moment would almost be this kind of marker. You've, you've hopefully gathered enough grain. You have enough bread. And, and remember, we are in the city of Bethlehem at the moment. The house of bread is what the city's name is. And so they are in that city. And yet, the ancient Jew, just as us, do we just want bread? No, we want fruits. We want figs to mix with that pita bread. We want, you know, uh, olives. We want grapes. We want these things. We want the other fruits of the harvest. And so they would celebrate then Pentecost. Pentecost was the time of bringing in those additional fruits in order to complement the bread, to complement the grains. And I don't think it's a coincidence, seeing that this Word of God is breathed out through the power of the Holy Spirit, that here we are, in this moment, and Boaz is going to be put to a choice. Does he incorporate this Moabite into the house of bread, and to the people of God? Is he going to do that? We... If you know your book of Acts, you know, of course, the start of the New Testament church was on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down and the word was preached. The first sermon of Peter happened. And so there is this tension that is in this moment as we close chapter 2 and as we move into chapter 3. Our new varieties of people going to be welcomed in with the covenant people of God. And so let's consider, stick with that ancient reader. Now I have to catch up to my illustration. But all right. So here, Ruth the Moabite is an illustration of that variety. She is the outsider woman who would have not been welcomed by most. But both Naomi And even Naomi and Boaz have both warned her not to go astray in the city of Bethlehem. It's not safe for her. Don't go straying elsewhere in Bethlehem. They both have warned you might get hurt. Don't go to other fields. But what will be Ruth's future in the time of Pentecost? The first five verses of chapter 3 make clear Naomi has a plan for Ruth's future. She likely is still troubled by the thought she was troubled in with in chapter 1. 
Ruth, if you follow me, she said in chapter 1, basically, you have no future with my people. You have no future with me. But Naomi is seen with new eyes. She's already reported in chapter 2 to being reborn, resurrected. She has a new sense of hope again. And in her hope, she looks to the worthy man of Boaz, who has been hospitable to both of them, even though they had nothing in themselves to commend themselves of being worthy of such over-the-top generosity. There is a kindness Christians, our fellow, all of us Christians, when we have the courage to seek it and to pursue it, that we can display that ultimately seeks Christ and, and represents Christ. It's a sacrificial kind of kindness when, where we see no, seek no applause or praise or benefit from it. But we just pursue it in order to be quietly faithful to God. We struggle often to reach for it because we are prone to be self-centered people. And yet the three leading individuals of our story will still continue to teach us that if we love God more than others, and because we love God more than others, then a God-like desire to bless others through sacrifice will prevail. Naomi, in overcoming her own depressed navel-gazing in chapter 2 through the grace of God, where she demands everything, uh, where she basically gives up on life itself, will now self-sacrifice in a way that is nothing short of miraculous. Now something needs to be made clear right away about Naomi's plan. By the letter of the law, her plan is a flawed plan. As we talked about last week, The ancient world is not the world of Jake from State Farm. Ruth has no legal right to be redeemed by Boaz or a relative of Elimelech. Now, Naomi does. Naomi could cash in. Naomi technically does have this insurance policy to her credit. But she has the rights. She could demand Boaz or someone from her husband's clan protect her. She could demand to basically be treated as if she was a wife. She would be given all blessings of a life. She has this insurance policy. She could technically collect. Ruth the Moabite doesn't have a legal argument to stand on, however. It would be sort of like me appearing before a judge and saying... I, want, I own your house, whatever your house is, you know, or your car, or what have you. The judge would say, you have no right to claim that. Ruth has no right. She has no argument to stand on. She wasn't a Jew. And so Naomi's plan will rely upon an overwhelming extension of grace by the worthy man of Bethlehem. And so Naomi, the Jew, with rights of marital protection instead of cashing in on her own insurance policy, sends Ruth with that policy and see if Boaz will, will cash it in, that he will honor Ruth the Moabite as if she was Naomi the Jew. What Naomi is focused on is how she can love those whom she loves in spite of what it will both cost and mean for herself. And when we have the courage to do that, when we surrender our own egos, 
Stop worrying about ourselves. A hard thing to do. That's the kind of wise, hesed love that can change the course in the case of our story here, the course of history. Because God redeems such love and he incorporates it to the larger redemptive story that he has. And Naomi's plan is fairly simple. She knows that the calendar, she knows that Boaz will be winnowing barley late into the night at the threshing floor, that the harvest was a big one this year, and ultimately he will sleep there. And he would sleep there, of course, because it would also be a a form of security. This is not the world of Costco's. If you lose your grain, if you lose your food, you might starve to death. And so we all need to kind of slow down to the hallmark scene playing out in our mind at this moment but, and, and consider a little more what Naomi's instructions mean. This is a shame and honor culture. In a shame and honor culture, you can be ostracized very easily for taking the wrong kind of step. We hear Naomi say, oh, go at night, and we immediately think again of the thousand Hollywood movies that we've watched in our lifetime with those kinds of stories. The reality is, going at night, going at this time, in the manner that Naomi encourages Ruth to go, would have been very wise. Ruth is young. She does not want to put Boaz in a situation or Ruth in a situation where this is another form of scandal and public gossip. This is a way where Ruth can ask Boaz to marry her and still protect the reputations of the individuals involved. And it's at great risk because in one sense, Boaz is already their gravy train. Boaz has already shown he would provide for them. And yet, Naomi encourages Ruth to take this step out because she wants Ruth to be blessed with a line that continues on. And then, even in Naomi in verse 3, she wants Ruth to, to be dolled up. She tells her to take a bath, put some perfume on. And every ancient Jewish reader will be saying right now, Wait! Wait, the Moabite? The Moabite is going to try and entice a Jewish man? Oh, the scandal of it all. Tell me more. This is ancient Israel. This is, again, a shame and honor culture. And so they want to hear more of this. And for Ruth, it's very dangerous being sent out like this. If Naomi's judgment is wrong, if Ruth takes a misstep, it really could separate her from the community for good. Again, already twice in this book, it's been clearly warned to Ruth, under, in other fields, she would not enjoy the protection she enjoys in Boaz's field. To offend Boaz would have been a great risk. But she realizes, just like Naomi has, that love requires initiative and sacrifice. And she too is willing to take the risk. And where is the application found for us as Christians? Well, the easy question is, how often do we fail to take the initiative? To be bold in our love for others? 
to dare send them by sharing the gospel to the security of the greatest threshing room floor before the God of Bethlehem, to Christ our Lord and Savior? I mean, I really doubt in this time of year, with so many festival celebrations going on, I mean, I think here in the church we've had about 50 this month, but God has not and will not give us opportunity to plant seeds, seeds that might just take root and harvest And yet, it's going to require a sacrifice of us. It's going to require a degree of courage to seize upon that opportunity. It might mean that you get rejected yet again. And yet, do you have the courage to still go forth? Because love requires initiative. Love requires sacrifice. So if God asks us to love our family, to love our friends, or even harder, harder, to love our neighbor... To love our enemies. How far are we willing to go to take that chance, to take that initiative, to make that sacrifice in order to love and love boldly? Advent is here, and the drumbeat of Advent is our God is reminding us He was willing to go the full distance, sacrificially, into the darkness, in order to be the light of love for us. How far are we then? willing to go, to follow His guiding words and pursue others with similar vein, with initiative and sacrifice on our end. And then from verses uh, 6 through 15 of chapter 3, we have Ruth going forward into the night with Naomi's plan in order to approach this worthy man. And really to set up this scene here, I want us to all do a little thought experiment. I want us to all imagine, just for the thought experiment, We are all unmarried, and we're going on one of those little reality TV shows, and the nation is going to pick for us our spouse. In current American culture, how confident are you that they're going to pick a winner for you? Uh, Yeah, it's it's probably going to be a booger, right? Um, (laughs) Yes, I said that pun. Um, So, I'm not all that confident that the nation would pick a good suitor. Our culture has proven that it's not picking wisely, even as we as Christians, we've, we've kind of surrendered the public square a little bit on that regard. I want you to appreciate the fact that for Boaz, his culture would have told him, Ruth is a terrible candidate. She is not someone he should be married to. I remember long, not all that long ago, a conversation with an individual. And it was over uh, two individuals who are getting married. And they were just angry at the marriage. And why they were angry at the marriage and kept continuing and carrying on was that they decided that one was far more physically attractive than the other. And my wife was there during the conversation, and we're both just kind of stupefied by it. And, and I'll be going, but the qualities of the individual, no, I don't care. One is far more attractive than the other. That's a cultural argument. That's the argument, that's a shallow argument. And that is uh, what motivates the world. And yet, 
Honestly, still, as Ruth walks towards Boaz, the city of Bethlehem would have been happy to come up with all sorts of reasons. Boaz never should marry Ruth. Well, Ruth, maybe they weren't concerned with the fact that she needs highlights or plastic surgery or he he has a receding hairline. They still are concerned with superficial things as well. She isn't Jewish. Even worse than that, she's a descendant of Lot's devilish daughters. She has no inheritance. She has no money. She has no real family name. She brings nothing to the table. Why would anyone want a woman like that? Ruth is walking to Boaz in the darkness, and the reality is nothing about her superficially to the common ancient Jew of Bethlehem would commend her to him. But she still walks in the darkness towards him. She has found this worthy man in Bethlehem, and she still walks in the darkness towards him. And she arrives to see the festival celebration of Boaz, celebrating the barley and grain, having come in and, and take note of, she takes note of where he falls down to sleep. And then as the party settled and sleep and darkness fell upon the night, she quietly goes to Boaz. She uncovers his feet and lies down beside him. And this is where I need to pause because there is a reality in the Hebrew you need to know and appreciate and yet you need to slow the brakes and not go too far with it. There are double meanings all over the Hebrew when it comes to this text. In the original language, this is a little bit like the kind of lines you would find in a Leslie Nielsen movie. Not Liam Neeson, Leslie Nielsen movie. If you don't know who Leslie Nielsen is, it means you're either young or more sanctified than I am. Um, And I picked him on purpose. But there are double meanings everywhere. Uncover could have a double meaning. His feet could have a double meaning. In the darkness could have a double meaning. And there are actually others, but I think you get the point. But I also want you to understand the following. Ancient Israel was not a culture that was ashamed of the intimacy of marriage. Uh, actually, uh, to our American kind of evangelical sensibilities, we would be scandalized to go to a Jewish wedding in the ancient world because they, everybody would be celebrating, they'd set up a tent in the right in the middle, and the, the couple would go in and consummate the marriage while the party continues. This is not a prudish culture. This is not a Victorian kind of culture. But that doesn't give us license to take this too far. Because Boaz has been called a worthy man in chapter 2. Ruth is going to be called a worthy woman by Boaz in just a moment. But what the covenant community, what the ancient reader is seeing right now, again, they're back with the main line of the story. That Moabite woman, she wants the Jewish man to be with her. I think part of the reason why the church has likely lost so much ground in the last several decades in the matter of intimacy in the culture is we so poorly upheld the ideal of marriage well and boldly without shame or fear. I think actually the best speech I've ever heard at a wedding was a father who was unafraid to encourage his daughter and now son-in-law to enjoy the full fruits of marriage. 
A marriage hasn't taken place yet, though, in this worthy couple, and so we don't want to cross the line and make this something of a Hallmark movie or a Hollywood movie. That's not what's being said here. And yet the hints of it the author wants you to think of because the scandal of it all is a Moabite might marry a Jew, a worthy Jewish man. And so... She is letting Boaz know she is interested in him in a whole new way. Making sure she's looking good and smelling good. And it's okay. Because she is wisely navigating that boundary. Not crossing over it, but she has the courage for the sake of love to take a risk. And at midnight, Boaz finally wakes up. And even though he is startled, he avoids crying out, which would have woken up everyone. And understanding a woman lays at his feet... He calls out to the woman in darkness and he asks a question uniquely familiar to one that is also asked in Genesis chapter 3. But he says, who are you? Who are you? And can I, can we just take a pause from the narrative and I ask you a question? Who are you? How would you answer that? First and foremost, who are you? For some in our land, we'd say, first and foremost, I'm an American. Now popular in our culture, because we don't learn from history, is to identify ourselves by our race. To resegregate our society. To make that the public thing that stands out. Or, gender identity. Sexual identity. That's... More answers from the public square. I know a lot of people are workaholics, identified by their job. Family life. Kids. Who are you? Who are you? More and more politicians in the country want us to identify either as vaccinated or unvaccinated. For Naomi, for Ruth, for Boaz, as this story continues to show us, the love of God helps define who they are. And God's love is shown through them, and it continues to change their stories, to give them a better story. Naomi could send Ruth into the darkness to pursue Boaz at great cost to herself because God had shown love upon her. And she knows God's love in her own story. For Ruth, the love of God of Bethlehem has so changed how she knows the world, how she sees individuals like Naomi and Boaz. It's helped give her courage to step out into the darkness to pursue a love. For Boaz as well, in the previous chapter, he makes clear his love of generous giving and blessing is because God has helped shape him, shape him in his generosity. But what about Naomi's spouse who started the book, Elimelech? What defined him? It wasn't God. No, he wouldn't struggle with God during the time of famine. Neither did Naomi's sons know God to the point where God was the priority. Now they left God's sanctuary. 
They left the peace of the God of Bethlehem. And so here, in the third chapter of Ruth, we have a question, who are you? And for every character of our story who understands the right answer, understands that at the core of their identity is the reality of being loved by the God of Bethlehem, they have found in that reality reasons to courageously love one another. And the others, they are but dust. They are but dirt. And to the ground they will return. Don't leave here making the mistake of someone or something else being your first and foremost priority over God. And back to the text. Ruth cries out to the worthy man of Bethlehem, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And for every ancient Jew at this point of the narrative, they would have had bated breath. This moment of great drama. Would a Jewish redeemer be willing to cover the sinful Moabite girl with his righteous wings? Would he be willing to so love this woman whose flaws were obvious that stood out in the broader community who wants, who would want a relationship with a woman like that? He sure, surely can't respond to what no in certain terms was a marriage request by Ruth. I mean, doesn't Ruth know? The woman isn't even supposed to ask a potential groom to marry them, especially a Moabite woman. By the standard of the law, you have no claim to him, Moabite. You wicked Moabite. You deserve to rather to die than have an inheritance in this holy land with a worthy man of Bethlehem. And the dilemma of the ancient Jew at this moment as they hear Ruth cry out to Boaz is nothing less than the scandal of the gospel itself. Men like Boaz aren't supposed to marry women like Ruth. And yet the scandal of the gospel also means really no longer are we really talking about Boaz and Ruth anymore, but we're talking about Jesus and ourselves. Jesus has no business being wedded to people like you and I, who are lost in the darkness, who fumble and fall for lack of light, who have been found in Moab by the spirit of his law. We merit nothing. We have no claim. We have no right to what he has, the field in which he watches over. And yet in the darkness, may we like Ruth have the courage to say to our own greater Boaz, the Lord Christ himself, I am your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer, my Lord. And if we so boldly come before him on his threshing floor, the threshing floor where he separates the wheat from the tares in order to make peace with him, He will always answer us with continued and enduring kindness because He has been kind to us. And so back to our narrative. Back to the story of scandal. And yet a story saturated in love. Ruth asks and Boaz warmly answers her plea for marriage to him with a benediction. A good word that the Lord might bless her. And he speaks to her kindness. Ruth could have pursued a younger man Boaz is older than her, and he sees a quality in Ruth that others don't see, and Ruth sees a quality in Boaz that that others miss as well. 
Boaz then says to Ruth, daughter, do not fear. I will do all that you ask. And then he speaks an interesting line, especially in the ESV, and it is one that seems to contradict maybe even some of the things I've been saying up here. He says, all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Now, if we take this hyper-literally, it seems like Ruth is the woman that, you know, metaphorically speaking, all the, the boys in high school want to ask to prom. That's not how we should read that. First off, because the next chapter will prove that's not true. That's, and that's not what Boaz was getting at here. There is plenty of hostility, once again, in the idea of Ruth being there. That's why they keep telling her to stay in Boaz's field, to be safe. No, actually, the idea of what Boaz is saying in the Hebrew basically translates at, as this. When you pass through the gates of my people, people know the field you work for. Let me say that again. When you pass through the gates of my people, people know the field you work for. And Boaz isn't talking about the earthly Bethlehem, the city that he's warned Ruth to be careful in. He's talking about the true people of God. He's, the true people of God know she's a woman of God. And so she is welcome to be counted amongst the people of God. Even though she is a Moabite, even though she seems like an outsider, God's love is seen in her. It's so dynamically present in her in an undeniable way. While others might scoff, while others might gossip and mock her, it doesn't matter for her or for Boaz and others of the Lord. Ruth knows who her God is, and her God is the true God, and she serves him. And so who is Ruth? Ruth is a worthy woman, made worthy because of the redeeming God who continues to bless the walk of her life in ways that others might not first notice. And Boaz, being a man who relies upon God, he yet still throws in one wrinkle here. He makes clear that while he wants to say yes to her marriage proposal, he's still confined to the God whose word is his first priority. So he will not send her away in the darkness without anything to take with her, but there is one other man who could step in who would have a chance to marry her. But if that man will not marry her, then Boaz makes clear he will marry her. He then tells her to stay until morning. This would have been for her protection and for her honor. And at first light, he gives her some more grain and he sends her off. And that would have also been to protect her dignity and honor because people would have thought she did not sleep there but was just going to get food from Boaz. And yet when she returned home to share with Naomi the good news, the real moment of pause would be the fact that the seed of the non-Jew might soon be grafted in at the time of Pentecost in Bethlehem into the harvest of Israel. That a walk made by a Moabite in darkness might actually yield the fruit of a worthy marriage. As the sun rises on this little ancient town of Bethlehem. And how long must Ruth wait? Her mother-in-law makes clear in the final verse of the chapter, this Boaz is, is a man who will not rest until he settles the matter of her being able to be married to him. Christian, what does Advent remind us of? How committed our God was to settle the matter 
of darkness in this life. To wed himself to a people who were not worthy of such a love. As we close the door on Advent and move into the Christmas week, we are reminded our God, the depths our God would go in order to wipe away the sorrow and pain in our lives by making sure that we are tightly bound to him. Who are you today in Christ Jesus? Is he your priority? Is he who you run to in the darkness? Or have you found yourself going elsewhere? Do not stray into more dangerous fields when seeking comfort in the darkness. Settle the matter today if you are still unsettled. Seek rest in him before anything else. Tarry no longer. Do not foolishly delay in making peace with our Lord. I especially speak to our younger ears. Do not play games when it comes to the one who is the Lord of the world. Seek Him boldly. Allow His wings of protection as a Redeemer to safeguard you. And for those of us here who know the Lord, let us remember our first love. Let us remember the one that we are to go to in the moments of darkness. Let us remember the scandal it was for Him to be married to people like us. He married us through a cross. And yet that scandalous grace... Let it serve to inspire us to respond to his love, to boldly love others, encouraging them also to find peace with Christ at the threshing floor where both the wheat and the tares are separated. What a worthy man whom we call upon, who came for us in the form of a child and yet was, was the fullness and glory of our God incarnate. Amen? Let us pray. Father God, who is a God like you, loving the Moabite within us, loving even the hypocritical Bethlehemite, and we are both of those people at times, and yet we find unity and peace, mind and soul, we find restoration, we find the fruit of Christ in coming to you boldly and seeking your protection, seeking to hear from you a better word. And you do not deny those who come to you, Lord. And we thank you for that gift, that precious gift of scandalous grace that we did not deserve, and yet you still freely gave. Let us be changed. Let us have courage. Let us go forth today and all days, remembering the precious gift it is to be wedded to you through the sacrificial cross of Christ. Amen.